Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is supported by the FX original series, Reservation Dogs. From Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, Reservation Dogs is a half-hour comedy that follows the adventures of four indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma. Reservation Dogs, now streaming exclusively FX on Hulu. Just a note before we get started. The stories we're sharing this season touch on different kinds of trauma. Please take care of yourself while you listen. In this sprawling lawsuit that pits foster families against Native families and tribes against states, there is actually one point that everyone agrees on, that the history of Native families being separated is tragic. It's a history that people who are still alive today survived, people like Sandy Whitehawk. Greetings, relatives. Uh, my name is Sandy Whitehawk. My Lakota name is stands in the center woman, and I come from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Growing up on the Rosebud Reservation in the 1950s, kids knew to hide when strange cars came up the driveway. I've heard people say, yeah, um, we had a drill in our house that if a car drove up the driveway, we knew that it would be somebody from the government or a social worker or something. But one day, Sandy wasn't fast enough. I remember one of my uncles saying that he remembers the day that the social worker came and got me, drove into the driveway, and I was toddling around, and they were all sitting around the, the house as far as I know. That's how it was told to me. And... She just simply got out of the car, scooped me up, and put me in the car. Her relatives watched the whole thing. Could you imagine what that would have been like? Could you imagine that you knew not to move and not to do anything and not to grab me and fight for me? Because they would have been put in jail and I would have still been taken. The first thing Sandy remembers about her white adoptive family was their truck. And I remember that it was a red truck. And I remember being lifted. I have this sensation of being lifted and put between these two people. And everything was so different. I just remember smell and what my white adoptive mom's arm looked like. What... um, my dad's adoptive dad's overhauls looked like the dashboard. I have this like incredibly clear picture. But right after that, I am in the back of the truck, looking in the front of the truck, watching this little brown girl. So at 18 months old, I disassociated to protect myself because I was in, I was terrified, you know, because these weren't my anybody I knew. That red truck took Sandy away from her family and her tribe to a small, rural, white community. 
Being adopted by a white family was supposed to give Sandy the chance at a better life, but it didn't. Sandy's adoptive mom was abusive. When I look back, she was suffering greatly. However, the abuse that I went through then because of hers was, you know, pretty, was really hard. The sexual violation occurred, the beatings occurred, the berating, um, the spiritual abuse, telling me from the time I could remember that I was going to go to hell, and mostly because I was Indian. Sandy has this vivid memory from when she was about 11 or 12. Her mom would have these rages. I just remember I scurried up the stairs to get away from her, and she was screaming and screaming, and then there's this little landing I could look down at her. And I seen her crying really hard and still saying mean things. And she goes, I should have just left you on the reservation. You're so ungrateful. Nothing I do is good enough for you. You're just completely ungrateful. And I remember thinking, what's a reservation? I should have left you on the reservation. What does that mean? Around the same time that Sandy was growing up in a white home, a national advocacy group got word of a problem. Tribal leaders reported their children were missing. The group, the Association on American Indian Affairs, conducted a huge national survey. What they found was shocking. 25 to 35% of all Native children were gone removed from their families and their tribes. Here's Bert Hirsch, who led the survey. And the idea was literally to separate uh, these people, the parents and their children, uh, from their tribal communities permanently. And ultimately, the hope was the tribes themselves would disappear. Last episode, I told you about boarding schools. They were followed by another federal program called the Indian Adoption Project. The government paid the Child Welfare League of America to take Native children and put them up for adoption by white families. Bert and his team found white families who were using those kids for farm labor. The Indian Adoption Project fits into this era of federal policy when the government was literally trying to get rid of tribes. And a tribe without children doesn't have a future. This type of systemic racism is easy to spot because it comes with intent. But there was another reason so many Native kids were missing. Bias in the system. Rarely were there allegations of child abuse, but neglect was rampant and it was premised largely on white supremacist thoughts that that Indian parents, virtually by definition, were unfit to raise children. Uh, that Indian reservations, virtually by definition, were unfit environments for children to be raised in. It took another 10 years of legal work, organizing, and advocacy. But in 1978, Congress finally voted on legislation to address the problem. Bert was there in the Senate chambers. And it was way late at night, if I remember correctly. I was in the Senate gallery. It was like midnight or after midnight already at that point because they were trying to get all this other legislation passed first. He was worried it wouldn't get through. But sure enough, at the very end, Byrd called it up, 
and it passed on unanimous consent. And on November 8th, 1978, President Jimmy Carter signed the Indian Child Welfare Act into law. ICWA was created the way we normally think about changing federal laws, through legislation. It took 10 years of research, congressional testimony, organizing, and finally a vote. And that vote in a democracy is supposed to reflect the will of the people. But there is this other way to change federal laws, one that doesn't involve Congress. If you have money and resources, you can take your issue to federal court. And that's what the people trying to get rid of ICWA are doing. You're listening to This Land, a podcast about the present-day struggle for Native rights. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel. Gohin Dawadon Jalek Ayet Gaylan, citizen of Cherokee Nation. This season, we're following how a string of custody battles over Native children turned into a federal lawsuit threatening everything from tribal sovereignty to civil rights. The Brackeens and their lawyers say that stories like Sandy Whitehawks are tragic, but that tragedy is in the past. And Native children don't need ICWA anymore. They say that while the law was well-intended, today it actually harms Native kids. And their evidence for that harm doesn't come from data or tribes or even child welfare experts. It's a story. The story of what happened when a white couple wanted to adopt a Native toddler. But we dug into their story, and it didn't add up. Today's episode is brought to you by FX's Reservation Dogs. The Hollywood Reporter called the first season of the original comedy a distinctive, wonderfully cast triumph of representation and ranked it the number one best TV show of 2021. This season, Reservation Dogs continues to follow our favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma, with each of them trying to forge their own path in hopes of one day making it to California. FX's Reservation Dogs is now streaming. Only on Hulu. This land is brought to you by Smalls. Give your feline friend protein-packed meals they'll crave with Smalls. Smalls is fresh, human-grade food for cats, delivered right to your doorstep so you too can embrace your inner house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh, protein-packed meals. Conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Smalls develops complete and balanced recipes for all life stages with leading cat nutritionists. Starting with human-grade ingredients like you or I would find at the market, Small's recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers and no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients means a better, healthier life for your cat. 
Since switching to smalls, cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box, softer and shinier coats, plus better breath. Take a short quiz on smalls.com slash thisland to customize your sampler and use code thisland for a total of 30% off your first order. That's smalls.com slash thisland, code thisland. Matthew McGill looks at ICWA through the lens of his clients, the Brackeens. I suppose one could dismiss their situation as merely an anecdote, but that is how every case in the Supreme Court is an anecdote of its own. I don't think the Brackeens ought to be dismissed because they are outnumbered by other more routine applications of ICWA. McGill is a partner at that big corporate law firm we told you about last episode, Gibson Dunn. He declined to speak with us. This is him speaking on a panel hosted by the right-wing organization, the Cato Institute. They had been the foster parents to a child for uh, about two years, and they had petitioned to adopt that child. Then although it was unrebutted that it would do great damage to this uh, somewhat troubled two-year-old to uh, remove him from uh, his the only parents, really, he had ever known, that nevertheless, the family court in Texas held that the adoption petition must be denied and that the child in due course would be transferred uh, to these um, strangers in New Mexico. And according to Matthew McGill, that decision to pick a Native family a Navajo family over his clients, constituted racial discrimination. Discrimination against white people, which he says is unconstitutional because laws aren't supposed to treat people differently based on race. It obviously discriminates on the basis of race when you deny non-Indian families such as the Brackeens the same opportunity to adopt children as you would give to any family of any of 500-plus Indian tribes. McGill says the law also discriminates against Native children. I would say that it is a legitimate goal to prevent the unjustified breakup of Indian families. But what does that have to do with the child the Brackeen is trying to adopt? I mean... This was not a child who was shunted off to to some boarding school for no reason at all. The Brackeens and their lawyers say what happened in their case was so wrong, all of ICWA should go away. Since so much is writing on the story of one case, as a reporter, I needed to know if that story was true. And that's tricky, because the details of Antonio's custody case are confidential— We dug through any documents we could find, talked to dozens of people, and after months of prying and poking around, finally, I got a call from our managing producer, Amy Westerbelt. Hey, Amy. Hey, Rebecca. I have some good news. We cracked it open. And what we got was a detailed timeline of Antonio's custody case knowing who filed what and when changed everything I thought I knew about that story. 
It turns out Antonio did have a Native family who loved and cared for him the first year of his life, his grandparents. But because of his mom and dad's substance abuse, CPS got involved and they decided he needed to go into foster care. After Antonio's parents' rights were terminated, Navajo Nation found a Navajo family within a couple months. After that, things moved pretty fast. The Brackeens hired a local family lawyer and filed a bunch of paperwork to try and keep Antonio in their home. In one motion, they tried to kick Navajo Nation out of the case. In it, they spelled the word Navajo with an H, not a J, every time it was written. But that motion and others all got thrown out. That's the family court decision McGill was talking about. And that's when, according to Jennifer's blog, they started looking for help with an appeal. Like, how long does it take for them to get connected to Gibson and Dunn? Okay, that's where this just, like, blew my mind because it's August 22nd, they get denied. By August 28th, what? Rebecca Ricketts of Gibson Dunn what? is filing motions. <laughs> what? That's like, mm-hmm. that's six yeah. days. That's, yeah. that's bonkers. That yeah. is so bonkers. Not even a week. Most law firms couldn't write that kind of appeal in six days. It left me wondering, were the Brackeens looking for legal help or was Gibson Dunn looking for plaintiffs? And how did they find each other that quickly? And Gibson Dunn wasn't the only power player ready to jump in. Someone else shows up. Who? The frickin' Texas Attorney General. What? Yes. That one, this, like, really shocked me because I... In family court, the office mm-hmm. of the Texas Attorney General and, like, some just, like, a, like some kid in foster care, they're intervening yep. in that case to say that ICWA should be declared unconstitutional? Mm-hmm. That's right. What the hell? That's mm-hmm. so bizarre. The office of the Attorney General, one of the most powerful politicians in the entire state, was there in family court... Imagine if you were filing for divorce or in the middle of an ugly custody dispute and your state AG showed up. I ran this by a few lawyers. They were all shocked. State AG's office would not participate in a case like that at all unless it reached perhaps an appellate or even a Supreme Court level within the state. That's Matthew Fletcher. He's a citizen of Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians and a law professor at Michigan State University. So it's extraordinary for high-level persons in the uh, attorneys in the state AG's office to step down into the trial level and participate. The Texas AG's office didn't find out about Antonio's case through their child welfare department. They found out through Gibson Dunn. Once we confirmed this, we weren't surprised because many of the lawyers who work at Gibson Dunn's Texas offices used to work for the attorney general and vice versa. It's like a revolving door. The Texas AG came to family court with an agenda, not about Antonio, but about ICWA. He asked that Tarrant County judge to declare ICWA unconstitutional. It turned a custody dispute 
a court case that determined the life of a two-year-old into a political battleground. We already knew from Jennifer's blog and federal court documents that the Brackeens were able to adopt Antonio after both Navajo Nation and Cherokee Nation agreed to the adoption. But we didn't know when the tribes agreed. And that detail stopped me in my tracks because it was the same week the Brackeens filed the federal lawsuit. I shared this with law professor Matthew Fletcher. So they file the federal lawsuit two days before there's court record that all of the barriers to the adoption have been lifted. Wow, that's insane. They were going to win. I mean, that's baffling and also disturbing that they were willing to go to those lengths. These, it's apparent to me these children are irrelevant, that they are part of a tool um, designed to destroy the Indian Child Welfare Act for reasons that I frankly do not understand. The Brackeens didn't file a federal lawsuit when they were losing custody. They filed the lawsuit when they were winning. Here is how Jennifer's blog, read by a voice actor, describes the time they spent waiting to adopt Antonio. We did our Christmas card photo shoot at Thanksgiving. We had been told by CPS we would definitely have the adoption by Christmas, so I planned the card accordingly. And as the days and weeks passed when I would have definitely had my card in the mail by now, we still didn't even have a date. So we mailed the card on the way home from the adoption on January 8th. And Chad cleverly closed the envelopes with some red tape and wrote, sorry, this year our card got caught up in some red tape. So those months they spent waiting to adopt Antonio had nothing to do with ICWA. It was just Texas being slow to finalize the paperwork. But here's how that same time period was described in court documents McGill filed right before Christmas. Quote, For months, their adoption of ALM has been delayed, caught in a terrifying whirlwind of court proceedings that occurred only because the federal government classifies ALM as an Indian child. McGill alleged his clients were caught in a terrifying whirlwind created only by ICWA after the tribes agreed to the adoption, after they all knew the Brackeens would adopt Antonio. Normally, when building a big federal lawsuit, you want to pick the plaintiffs with the strongest case, which makes the Brackeens an odd choice. It's almost like a white student suing a university over affirmative action because they were worried they wouldn't get accepted. But in the end, they did. It just doesn't make sense. But there's this other way the Brackeens are the perfect plaintiffs. It's less about how lawsuits work and more about how politics work, specifically politics in the state of Texas. The federal lawsuit, Brackeen v. Holland, is now waiting on the steps of the Supreme Court. It got this far because the foster parents have powerful company, states, more than one. Here's law professor Matthew Fletcher again. When a state says, hey, there's this federal law that we think is 
wholly unconstitutional, even if what the state is saying is patently frivolous, it's still going to get a hearing and a serious one. When the Brackeens filed their federal lawsuit, Texas was right there with them. We wanted to know why. And we had a way to find out. Public offices, like an attorney general, have to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests, or FOIAs. So we filed FOIA requests to the office of the Texas Attorney General. They stonewalled us. But in building their case, they gave us a workaround because they brought on other states. So we FOIA'd those states and uncovered a web of communication. The same day Texas filed the federal lawsuit, they sent out an email blast inviting other states to join. The email was sent to mostly Republican attorneys general with the subject line, New Federalism Case Opportunity. Of all the states Texas emailed, only three got back. Indiana, Louisiana, and Ohio. And here's what's strange about those states. It's the states that have few Indian people, few Indian tribes are the ones who are using this as a vehicle to assert states' rights. In the lawsuit, 26 states came out against Texas and in support of ICWA. Those states represent 94% of all tribes in the U.S. The four states who say ICWA is a bad law have less than 1% of all tribes in the United States. Those states also have very few ICWA cases. When we sent Louisiana a public information request, they told us they had 32 open cases involving Native children. Their annual caseload is over 10,000. In that email to other state AGs, Texas laid out why ICWA is a state's rights issue. It's all about the 10th Amendment. The Tenth Amendment says that states have all the powers left to govern that are not explicitly delegated to the United States. And that's a lot of power. Most family law is governed by states. Marriage, divorce, custody over kids, how much child support you have to pay, and so on. And so Texas says ICWA, by butting into child welfare proceedings, is an example of federal overreach. Texas also says that ICWA is a burden on its child welfare agency. So, for example, ICWA requires states, state agencies, to send notice to Indian tribes. And Texas says, we don't want to notify tribes you can't make us. It's kind of akin to a neener, neener, neener argument. We don't want to do it, you can't make us kind of thing. To make sure we weren't missing anything, we reached out to tribes, social workers, and child welfare agencies in those four states. And what we found made the lawsuit even more perplexing because the state's own child welfare agencies don't support it. Before joining the lawsuit, the Attorney General of Louisiana reached out to his state's child welfare agency. The agency told him ICWA is a great law, not a burden, which is why the Secretary of Children and Family Services was shocked to see him join the lawsuit two days later. We heard similar surprise in Texas. The 
Texas Department of Family and Protective Services has a great working relationship with all three federally recognized tribes here in Texas. This is Leah Lopez. She is a social worker who handles most of the ICWA cases for the Isleta del Sur Pueblo, a tribe in El Paso, Texas. If there's an investigation and they have reason to believe that they're one of our families, they will give us a call. Our on-call worker goes out with the investigator and they work the case together. It was surprising that this lawsuit came to be. So if these attorneys general aren't following the advice of their own child welfare agencies, who are they listening to? And that was the biggest discovery in the pile of documents we uncovered. In all those thousands of pages of emails, we saw exactly who the AGs are listening to, who they're strategizing with, who they go to for legal advice, who they send drafts of documents to for approval. It's not child welfare experts. It's a handful of anti-ICWA lawyers. And that communication between anti-ICWA advocates and state AGs about using ICWA to advance states' rights has been going on for years, since way before the Brackeens case, since before Antonio was born. The Brackeens didn't just have states on their side. They got help from another unexpected place, a federal judge. That story, after the break. This Land is brought to you by Feels. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, pain. CBD is a safe, natural method to relieve pain, nervousness, and sleeplessness without harmful side effects. And Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free, delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction. I've taken CBD for neck and back pain before. Place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important, and everybody's dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash land and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash land to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash land. This episode of This Land is sponsored by our friends at NordVPN, providers of the highest quality encryption for your internet traffic while hiding your IP and physical location. With over 5,400 servers in 59 countries, it is easy to get better internet speed and protection with one click. And it's available on every major platform, including Windows, iOS, Android, and Linux. 
One NordVPN account enables six simultaneous connections on different devices, so you can get protection for your whole family. While I'm traveling for work, I'm often using unsecure airport or restaurant Wi-Fi. Public Wi-Fi is notorious for being a hotbed for hackers to steal data. By using NordVPN on my phone, laptop, and iPad, this protects me from hackers and gives me peace of mind. NordVPN CyberSec is an advanced technology solution that takes your security and privacy to the next level. It blocks websites known for hosting malware or phishing scams, making you safer from online threats. Besides, NordVPN CyberSec ad blocker feature takes care of annoying flashing ads, which speeds up your browsing experience. Go to nordvpn.com slash thisland or use code thisland to get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. Act fast because this offer is for a limited time only. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash thisland or use code thisland all in one word. The strategy in this case isn't new. Texas has used the courts to challenge federal laws and statutes for a long time. More than 100 House Republicans on Thursday signed on to an amicus brief in support of the Texas lawsuit aimed at overturning the election results in four swing states. Now comes a new challenge brought by Texas and other GOP-dominated states that Obamacare must be struck down in its entirety. Texas is trying to invalidate the results of the presidential election in four key swings. A lot of those cases were filed in one judge's district. A federal judge in Texas has temporarily blocked the Obama administration's public school. A federal judge in Fort Worth declared the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor in Fort Worth agreed with a Republican-led coalition of 20 states who brought the lawsuit. That was news coverage of federal judge Reed O'Connor striking down the Affordable Care Act and Obama-era guidelines on transgender bathrooms in schools. He's also ruled against DACA and family leave for LGBTQ parents. Here's Matthew Fletcher. So he has a history of granting injunctions or striking down federal statutes that conservatives tend to not like. So if you want a federal statute to go away, at least for a little while, you can always count on Reed O'Connor. In 2018, the Associated Press called him conservative's go-to judge. Even the Wall Street Journal has accused him of going too far. Judge Reed O'Connor serves in the Northern District of Texas. And the way his district works is unique. If you want a federal lawsuit to go to the Supreme Court, you have to start in district court. It's like the ground level. District courts have a lot of judges, so when you file a lawsuit, you don't know who will hear your case. But the Northern District of Texas is different. There, judges have worked out their own system to divvy up cases. And so, when you file a civil lawsuit in a handful of counties, you have a good chance of winding up in Judge Reed O'Connor's courtroom. Over half the lawsuits the Texas AG has filed challenging federal laws have landed in Reed O'Connor's lap. And here's where the Brackeens start to make sense as plaintiffs. It's not because of the details of their custody case. It's because of where they live in Tarrant County, Texas, in Reed O'Connor's district. 
if you think you can find a judge or a court that would be supportive of a position that you're taking, strategically, it always makes sense to go to that venue if you possibly can. Lawyers and judges don't like to talk about it, but that's a realistic thing. They venue shopped. Remember earlier when I said there were factual discrepancies between the details of the custody case and what the Brackeens claimed in federal court? Well, I found discrepancies like that all over the place. And they really matter. The whole lawsuit turns on the story the Brackeens and their lawyers tell. That story determines whether or not the Brackeens were harmed by ICWA, whether or not that harm violated their constitutional rights, whether or not the Brackeens have the legal standing to bring this lawsuit in the first place. But early on, Judge Reed O'Connor did the Brackeens, McGill, and the Texas AG a real favor. Federal courts have this process for collecting evidence in a civil lawsuit. It's called discovery. But McGill argued that wasn't necessary. And Judge Reed O'Connor agreed. Now that the case is on appeal, it's too late. So what that means is that the federal judges reviewing this case are taking everyone on their word. They don't have all the documentation that I have. You, as a listener to this podcast, have information that has never been presented in federal court. And all of this, the story, the venue shopping, the strategy, it worked. Shockwaves are going through the Native American community. And that's after a federal judge calls landmark legislation involving Native American adoption illegal. In October of 2018, Judge Reed O'Connor ruled that ICWA in its entirety, is unconstitutional. There are a lot of legal ways I could talk about his decision, but here's the simplest version. Judge O'Connor took the Indian Child Welfare Act, a 40-year-old statute, and chucked it out the window. Now it's up to the Supreme Court whether or not that decision will stand. Today, Sandy Whitehawk is a national advocate for Native families. Most of her work is helping other adoptees reconnect and heal. But she knows that ICWA is under attack. And I wanted to hear what she thought about this case. So people who oppose ICWA say that the law disadvantages Native kids because it treats them differently than other kids, and that it's a bad law for Native children. What would you say to that? Bad how? How does it treat them bad? Do you got an example? or? Yeah, so I think, like, in these particular cases, they say that it puts, like, the interest of the tribe over the best interest of the child. No. I don't know what you call it when you take something and misconstrue it, that is so not true. Because people do not understand the law, do not understand the structure of a tribe, they don't know anything about Indian families and our connection to each other. So in this most recent lawsuit, the actual legal argument is that it's unfair to the white foster and adoptive parents because it puts them last in line. 
give me a fucking break. I'm sorry. That's my that's that's my immediate emotional response. You can edit all this out, but Jesus. It puts them last. Talk about privilege. We shouldn't be last because we're white. Just because we're white. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, what would you say in response to that? I guess my response really would be that's a true expression of uh, white privilege, that they would assume that they could have their needs over a child that's not even of their culture, that they feel that they have a right is just beyond me. You know, I remember being told, you know, we took you from the reservation so you would have a chance. You know, a chance at what? We're given nothing to deal with the major micro and macro aggressions that happen on the daily. Most white families to this day minimize racism like crazy. So you're emotionally isolated to the point of, you know, overload, which is why for adoptees, there's such a high rate of suicide and addiction. Native leaders aren't wondering why a couple who already won custody brought this lawsuit, or why the states with the tiniest of ICWA caseloads are the ones leading the charge. What is baffling about the underlying facts of this case does not baffle Native leaders. Because the consensus in Indian country is that this case was never about ICWA, just like boarding schools were never about helping Native children. It's not about kids. It was never about kids for the organizations or even the states that are part of this case. So if this case isn't about the adoptions that are supposedly at the center of it, then what is it about? Well, it's about the future of Indian law. I asked that question to a lot of people. It definitely is so much more than just the welfare of children. I think there's a a strategic and aggressive and intentional and a deliberate and a bold effort to undermine every bit of tribal sovereignty. Really thinking about ICWA as being the first test case, if you will, for uh, really all of federal Indian law being undermined by questioning the status of tribal citizens and uh, the sovereign authority of tribal governments. I think it's a pivotal moment for sovereignty in this country. And the question will be whether this country continues to understand that tribes are sovereign nations, that we ought to be able to exercise the right to protect our resources, whether they're natural resources or, in this case, something more precious, our children and our future. That was the president of the National Congress of American Indians, the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association, and the principal chief of Cherokee Nation. Native leaders who are watching this case are not just worried about future generations of Native children. They're worried about the future existence of tribes. Even with states attached, McGill needed other plaintiffs, plaintiffs to make his case stronger. 
foster parents who, unlike the Brackeens, didn't have an easy time getting around Iqua. And he found a case in Minnesota. Next time on This Land. When they terminate parental rights, it's as if the whole biological family is deceased. You don't even have a right to see your brothers and sisters anymore. They had no grandparents' rights. I was calling every attorney in town, and I got rejected, turned down. I couldn't get no help anywhere. is reported, written, and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, Gohin Daudon Chalek Ayatlike La, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting this season from Maddie Stone, Martha Troyan, citizen of Obi Shikakong, Laxul First Nation, and Amy Westervelt. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Katie Long, with special thanks to Allison Falzetta. From Critical Frequency, our managing producer is Amy Westervelt. Our senior producer is Sarah Ventry, and our story editor is Rekha Murthy. Additional editing from Martha Troyan and Polly Denetclaw, who is Dene. Sound design by Lyra Smith, Mark Bush, and Charlotte Landis. Original score composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Our outro song is an honor song for adoptees, written and sung by Jerry Dearly, who is Oglala Lakota. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton, founder of the First Amendment Project. Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Jennifer Brackeen's blog was read by voice actor Alyssa Zia. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people find us, and please share it with your friends. If you have a tip or information to share related to our reporting, you can do that securely and anonymously through our secure drop. You can find a link in the show notes. To see a detailed timeline of Antonio's case, visit thislandpodcast.com. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. This season of This Land touches on different forms of family, childhood, and racial trauma. If you feel like you could use support, please check our show notes or website, thislandpodcast.com, to find resources for adoptees and survivors of childhood trauma, abuse, foster care, and boarding schools. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.